0: okay if you haven't noticed already uh, these uh these podcast episodes are starting to come a little bit slower uh when we started um, when we started revelation I was cranking them out pretty much every week but but here recently I had to do some had to do some extra work in the last few chapters to uh to make sure I was you know being as thorough as possible and and, of course, I'm also teaching through the Book of Acts and and the Book of Philippians. Uh, Acts on, in Sunday school every Sunday morning. And uh, I'm teaching through Philippians at the service at, at church. Um, so, uh, in addition to that, I'm having to work extra hours as a chaplain at the hospital. Uh, so, I, I hope you don't mind if they start coming um, probably a couple of weeks apart rather than every week. Um, but, uh, understanding that, let's... Um, Let's get into uh, chapter 12, chapter 12 of Revelation. And you'll also probably notice that I don't have my my fancy microphone with me. It's going to sound a little bit more uh, primitive this time. I hope you can bear with that. Um, But we're going to talk today uh, in Revelation chapter 12 about the vision that John has uh, of the woman and the dragon. I don't know if you've uh, noticed this yet, but uh, as we get further and further into the book of Revelation, the the symbolism used will get... uh, Thicker and more more difficult for uh, the modern mind to deal with. I'm not saying that it's it can't be understood or anything like that. I'm just saying that uh, we're going to have to look at the symbols that are used and uh, uh, also realize that this apocalyptic literature is it's a genre that we're we're pretty much wholly unfamiliar with in our modern context. We're uh, we're going to see. Uh, symbols overlapping each other, various levels of visions, chronological order. Uh, we're going to see all that you know, kind of come into play. So before we begin uh, looking at chapter 12, it's, uh, it's probably a good time for me to introduce you to a concept that we're going to see a few times in the rest of the book. Uh, the concept I want you to understand it's what's called recapitulation or or prophetic recapitulation. Um, that's when a a vision or a prophetic utterance summarizes or restates what has been said before, uh, but usually it's going to uh, intensify it or or view it from a different perspective. Um, we're going to see this in this chapter as the second half of chapter. Twelve is basically going to restate what we saw what we see in the first half of chapter twelve, but we're also going to talk about this um, uh, this concept a lot more when we get to the bold judgments uh, There are many people from various viewpoints that see the bold judgments or the vile judgments, however you want to say them um, as recapitulating what we have already seen in the uh, in the trumpet judgments but uh, before we start looking at at the uh, at all that, let's, let's, uh, look at, uh, chapter 12 of Revelation and let me just go on and tell you that the application of this chapter, uh, is the same for us today as what we see in the initial readers who would have first received this letter. Uh, what we're gonna see here is we're gonna see the protection of God's people, uh, from Satan by Christ's atoning work. Uh, that's something that you and I need today when we look around and, you know, everything seems to be going down the tubes, both, you know, in the world and our, in our own lives. Uh, but as long as we, uh, as long as we're here, we're gonna have enemies, including the greatest enemies, Satan, the world, the flesh. Um, but we know through the gospel that, uh, we are already overcomers by, by the gospel. Um, we, we'll get to all that. Uh, but remember, Remember the last thing that we saw in chapter 11. Uh, it was the opening of God's temple in heaven. Uh, now John, at the beginning of chapter 12, he's going to see another vision. The, verse 1 and 2 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So he he sees this sign appear and notice the sign. It is a, a sign that appears in heaven. It's a woman that is clothed with the sun, got the moon under her feet, and twelve stars. Um, he tells us right out of the gate that what what we're seeing here, what he is seeing here, is a sign. It's a symbol. It, it's expressing an actual reality, but it is a sign. It is a symbol. So please don't think there's a you know a giant lady. And a dragon floating around in the clouds somewhere or, or anything like that, we are being shown a vision that has meaning and as we decipher that meaning by by looking at the old testament symbols uh, we 're going to understand more clearly what what he's what 's trying to be communicated so I guess the first question we need to ask is who is this woman that John sees um, we are uh, we're given, given a clue in the first verse as she is described to us. Uh, the woman that John sees is clothed with the sun. Uh, she has the moon under her feet. She has a crown of 12 stars. Um, those are very vivid descriptions of planetary things and stars and, and those kind of things. And to be honest, there's really all kinds of neat little interpretations of what these possibly could mean. Um, you know, she's just some kind of cosmic lady in space, or or something like that. Um, but immediately, our minds should be drawn back to the dream that Joseph has in Genesis thirty-seven, verses nine and ten. Uh, in, in Genesis thirty-seven, Joseph actually has two dreams. In the first dream, he he and his brothers were out in the field binding sheaves, and Joseph's sheaf stood up. And those of his brothers bowed down to him. And in the second dream, which is in verse 9 and 10 of Genesis 37, he says, let me just read it to you, verses 9 and 10 of Genesis 37. He says, Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon... And eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And they understood what he was saying because his father rebuked him. And this is what Jacob, remember Jacob is his father. He says, what is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come bow ourselves down before you to the ground? So even Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, when, when they were told the dream, they understood the interpretation was that Jacob and uh, and his wife were the sun and the moon, and the uh, the the eleven stars, uh, twelve stars, including Joseph himself, uh, were the the sons of Jacob. So immediately we can see the 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 images of the sun and moon representing the patriarchal family, Jacob and his wife, and twelve stars of the twelve sons, which later became the twelve tribes that sprang from their lineage. Um, The one that John sees in heaven here is a symbol, an image of God's perfect Israel, God's true people. And I say that you know a lot of people have taken it to mean Israel because of the uh, the connection between Joseph and his dream, Uh, but it is actually not just the uh, not just the uh, uh, physical descendants of Jacob in the twelve tribes, but it is the true. Uh, people of God, the true Israel, and the reason I say that is because later in this chapter, the woman is going to be nurtured, protected by God, she 's going to be hunted by the dragon, she 's going to give birth to the Messiah, uh, and she 's going to be seen on earth as well. so here she 's seen in heaven. this is the this is this lady in heaven is uh, the the symbol of the perfect Israel. what Israel is meant to be god 's perfect. People and so when we see her on earth, we'll uh, we'll see uh, how that plays out. But here, uh, with all that in mind, we can see that the woman being described with the same elements as the dream that Joseph gives and applies those elements the way they're applied in Genesis 37. It's pretty safe to say that this is a picture of God's Israel. Um, but before we before we move on, you got to make sure that you recognize that the woman who is seen in heaven is a sign. He tells us that. I saw a sign that was in heaven. She will be, I told you this a second ago, but she'll be seen on earth later uh, in this in this chapter. But here she is seen in heaven. And it lets us know that what we're seeing is, um, I don't know the best way to explain it, but we're seeing God's true Israel. Not just everyone who is descended uh, from Abraham. So a lot of people take this to see uh, to mean, you know, it's just all the people that their nationality is Israeli. Uh, but that's not, that's not the case. This is a sign of those that are in heaven. The woman represents the perfect elect of God. Uh, and that elect of God is by grace through faith. Now, through faith. Um, it's hard for some people to grasp the concept. But God's people, God's people, His true people, have always been His people by grace through faith. Uh, Paul makes that point abundantly clear for us as he argues in uh, in Romans nine, uh, verse six through thirteen. In that section, Paul is Paul tells us that not all Israel is of Israel. Let me just read it to you, and we'll make some comments on the way. Uh, Romans nine six through thirteen. It says. This is Paul speaking, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Uh, He's saying, he's saying, you know, if if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and all the Jews rejected Jesus, then God's promises to the Jews must have failed. Paul is saying, verse 6, no, it's not as though the word of God has failed. He said, this is why, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and he quotes the Old Testament, "...through Isaac shall your offspring be named." Uh, now, think about what he's saying there. He's saying, now, Abraham had had two sons. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. Uh, both could say, hey, we're descended from Abraham. But it was only through Isaac that God's people were chosen. It wasn't through Ishmael. So Ishmael had no claim to say, oh, well, because I'm Abraham's son, I'm God's people. No, uh, God told him, it's through Isaac your offspring shall be named. And in verse 8 of Romans chapter 9 it says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this, verse 9, for this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, this is, uh, Isaac's wife, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So in the next generation, the same thing happened. Uh, Rebecca, Isaac had two sons. Uh, and so there was, both of these sons were also, uh, descended from Abraham. And both of these sons, Jacob and Esau, were descended from the promised son, which was Isaac. But only one of those sons, Jacob, not Esau, was accounted for the seed. Was accounted as the people of God. Was accounted for the promise. So Paul's—we could go on in Romans nine, but Paul's uh, intention there is to show that even way back in Abraham's day, even in the days of Isaac, even in the days of Jacob, it was—it was God's prerogative to say who was His people and who was not. His people. He took the son, the two sons of Abraham and separated them and said, one is, one is not. He took the two sons of Isaac and separated them and said, one is and one is not. And it says, Paul's point ultimately as he goes through Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that God's people are called or have always been by grace through faith, and now they are through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, if God has separated out uh, people that are not in His Son, it's entirely His prerogative uh, to do so. So, what this woman that we see here in heaven is, it's the true elect, the remnant of God, through whom the Messiah will come into the world. It's, it's true Israel. It's not just the entire nation, but it is God's uh, elect people uh, from whatever era. Uh, and this is why we're going to see in verse 2 that she's pregnant and she's crying out in birth pains. Uh, because it is through the the people of God that God brings forth the Messiah, and you know it's it's many many Old Testament pictures are going to show us Israel uh, pictured as a woman uh, who is in labor pains. You know Isaiah twenty six seventeen through eighteen says, as the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains, and it says, thus we. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant and writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to win. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. That's Isaiah 26. In Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, uh, it says, Rithe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued." There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And then, of course, once again, you have Micah uh, 5, chapter 3. This is right after the Messianic promise. It says, Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. So, so far, we have this woman who is God's true Israel, the one that we see in heaven. Uh, not the one running around, or the one that we see in heaven, uh true Israel is writhing in pain, about to give birth. uh then the scene shifts, and we are given another vision that John sees and we'll come back to the woman in a in a bit as John goes back to her, and this will all fit together perfectly, but for now, let's just move on uh to the dragon that uh that John sees uh verse three in revelation twelve says And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his seven heads, seven diadems. His tail, the first part of verse four says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Um, Really, isn't any dispute? Anywhere about the identity of the dragon, uh, in fact we're explicitly told in verse nine that this is Satan, the ancient serpent, um, but on the other hand, there's all kind of speculation about why he has seven heads and why he has ten horns and seven crowns and you know there are some people that say it's because you know seven's the number of Perfection, we've seen that before. We talked about that in the very first uh, chapter of Revelation, the seven candlesticks. Um, and we proved that there too. So I'm not just saying seven is the number of perfection and moving on. You'll have to go back and listen to, to find the evidence for all that. Um, but so it's some people say that it, he appears perfect because he has these seven heads. Uh, some folks link the diadems to his authority, and we've already seen the horn as the uh, symbolic of power in the Old Testament. You you need uh, if you missed that it was in chapter five where we saw the the horns uh, on the uh, on the lamb, and we went back in the Old Testament and showed the uh, specifics of how a horn is a some symbol of power. Uh, and to be honest with you, we can go there, if you want to, to talk about the seven heads and the ten horns and all those things. I don't really think there's anything wrong with looking at these symbols and interpreting them this way, fleshing all this out. Uh, you know, diadems do signify authority, crowns is what they were. And, and we've already seen the significance of seven and the horns and all that. Um, but what I think is more striking and more informative about the way the, the dragon appears in John's vision, is the connection between the dragon's appearance here and the appearance of the beast rising from the sea that we're going to see in in the next chapter. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to see it in the next chapter. The appearance of that beast and the appearance of this dragon are virtually identical uh, the beast in chapter 13 will also have seven heads and will also have seven diadems and will also have ten horns so their appearance is i mean it's almost identical and that's just too precise to be a coincidence uh, satan here the old dragon the red dragon the ancient serpent uh, he is linked to the beast that we're going to see in the next chapter, and that beast is going to persecute the god It's going to persecute God's people. Um, the dragon is the power behind the beast and all his attacks. And when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see uh, lots of things about this beast. I'll just give you a snapshot so you kind of understand what I'm talking about. Uh, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see that the beast himself is a composite picture of the four beasts that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, there, Daniel sees four different beasts, each representing uh, a kingdom that was to come. Uh, they symbolize Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, the first was like a lion with, with eagle's wings. That's Babylon. We'll explain that when we get there. Uh, the second was like a bear. That's Persia. Uh, the third was uh, like a leopard with with wings, and that's Greece. And this leopard also had four heads, uh, and it's kind of a weird picture. But those four heads symbolize the four kings that took over after the death of Alexander the Great. We'll, we'll explain all that when we get to the next chapter. And the fourth beast, beast that Daniel sees is one with iron teeth, and one that has ten horns, and that's Rome. Uh, so, when all of these beasts, when you combine the picture of all of these beasts that you see what do you have, you got a horrific looking beast with seven heads and ten horns uh, so that's the beast of the next chapter, and we'll go into depth when we get there. But what does that have to do with the dragon that we see here? The answer is that we see the the fact that Satan himself is the power behind all of these beasts who have come before, all of these uh, conquering powers. He is the power behind all the kingdoms and the people who have uh, persecuted and tried to destroy God's people throughout the ages. And he continues to be that agent that is driving the persecution of God's people. He is um, ultimately the one who is the enemy, behind the enemy. Uh, and in the first part of verse 4, it says we see his tail sweeps away a third of the stars. Now, here is where the debate usually gets wound up. Um, is this a picture of the fall of Satan and his angels before creation? Uh, A lot of people think so, and certainly you can't dismiss the fact that it alludes to it, and we're going to see it even clearer alluding to it later on in this chapter. Um, There's definitely an allusion to that idea, And, uh, and there's also considerable debate as to whether the stars here represent the angels that fell with him, or kings and rulers that are being killed and trampled, or some even say the Israelites themselves. You know, stars are often used as images of angels in the Old Testament, and they're often used to describe kings and and rulers in the Old Testament. So, what is actually going on here, and how do we make the decision? I I hope you've been with me long enough to know that the answer to the question of how do we test our assumptions is, here in Revelation, we look at the the references from the Old Testament. What is what is John actually referencing when he talks about the the stars being cast down? Uh, the sweeping down of the stars is it's an allusion to Daniel chapter eight verse ten. In Daniel chapter eight verse ten, uh, what we see there is. A, a an enemy persecuting God's forces. Uh, Daniel sees, in Daniel's vision, chapter 8, he sees a goat or ram uh, with a great horn that gets broken, the horn gets broken, and then four horns take its place, and out of one of those horns grows a little horn. Uh, now, for those of you that don 't know this is this is prophecy of the conquering of Alexander the Great, who when he died he, he was the the great horn when he died, his empire was broken into four countries, uh, four regions. And it was taken over by his top four generals. That's where the four horns sprouted in this place. And out of one of those kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom, uh, a, a little horn arose, which was the little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, and he ended up conquering Jerusalem, ravaging the temple, sacrificed pigs on the altar, set up a statue of Zeus in the temple, and that is the uh, that is the catalyst that uh, began the uh, began the uh, you know the Maccabean revolt 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 in Judas, Maccabeus, and Hanukkah and the festival of lights, and all that kind of stuff, um, and that's a whole a whole other history but in in Daniel chapter eight, verses nine and ten, let me read it says out of one of them, out of one of these four horns came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the gl- glorious land. Uh, this is Antiochus, it grew great uh, even even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. Now, this is a reference to the conquering of the armies of Antiochus Epiphanius in Jerusalem that was the catalyst for the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, The text in Daniel means to communicate the power and the destructive force this uh, Seleucid leader commanded, Antiochus Epiphanius. Uh, But what he does with his army the dragon accomplishes with his tail. do you see it? He threw down the stars, but more importantly for our discussion, we see um, uh, a revelation here of the power the power behind all those forces, the power behind Antiochus Epiphanaus, the power behind uh, the Babylon and persia and and uh, Greece and Rome and the, the persecutors of god 's people, and even even as uh the Romans are coming against uh, uh, are, are going to be coming against God's people here, especially in the next chapter. Um, but in the in the first century, we see the power behind them is the dragon, this ancient serpent. Uh, he was behind he was behind the conquering of God's people uh, from the beasts of Daniel. He's been operating against God's purposes ever since the Garden, when God promised that the seed of the woman would be raised up. To crush his head so throughout scripture you see the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent now the obvious question that's raised the question that's probably going through your mind and what would be going through my mind for sure is I thought God brought Babylon against Jerusalem in judgment and and didn't God bring the Romans against Jerusalem in judgment and and so the answer is the question is how could how could the dragon be the power behind it if this was all God's judgment falling? The answer uh, to that question is yes, God did. God did bring judgment, bring those armies against uh, in Jerusalem, Babylon, and and Rome. Here, we got to remember that even the devil is God's devil. Uh, the Bible does not present us with a worldview that has God and Satan as equal powers fighting each other. Uh, Satan, although he indeed rages and fights against God's purposes and His people, uh, Satan is nothing more than a created being. Uh, he he only operates in the context. In which God allows, uh, this is why He could do nothing to Job unless God allowed Him to do so. And even then, I mean, He couldn't attack Job uh, except for the extent that God allowed Him to. Uh, the de- the devil sinfully rages against God and His people, but you know, even though He's intent on killing and destroying, God is in complete control and uses His raging uses his attempts to destroy for God's purposes. This is one of the greatest truths in scripture for the Christian who is uh hurting, experiencing tragedy, suffering. Uh I mentioned to you I'm right now I'm sitting in my office at the hospital. I'm a hospital chaplain and God's sovereignty and suffering is one of the it's one of the only things that allows me to do what I do. God is in control Which means that nothing happens that takes God by surprise. Nothing can harm a child of God that God does not allow. And if he allows it, he allows it for his good purposes. Even if we don't understand. Even if we can't see how it is. And so, what we see here is we see the woman. And we see the dragon both in heaven. And in verse 4, if you pick up at the, the last part of the verse 4, it says, um, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, notice the dragon's main focus, his main purpose. It's, uh, it's almost like all his attention and all his energy is focused upon killing the child. That the woman's going to bear, uh, we see his. I mean, we see this activity uh, throughout Scripture, uh, but it culminates in in this one overarching purpose. He wants the seed of the woman dead and defeated, and this goes back to the curse that God placed, you know, uh, upon the serpent in the garden. I mentioned it earlier. The seed of the woman was foretold to crush the serpent's head. Uh, so, Satan focuses all his energy making sure that the uh, the seed of the woman is defeated. We, we see this I mean even before christ 's birth, Herod ordered all of bethlehem 's children killed in an attempt to find Jesus. You can find that Matthew chapter two, verse sixteen uh, behind herod 's evil and murderous decisions, there was the dragon working in the background, ready to kill the seed who was prophesied to crush his head and defeat him. Uh, But you know, you know the story as well as I do. The Messiah did come, and He was victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And He, the the dragon, failed uh, to devour the child when it was born. Verse five in Revelation twelve says, "She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron." But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Uh, The child here, of course is a symbol of Christ. It's Christ himself. Uh, The child that the woman bears is, is, he said, to rule the nations uh, with a rod of iron. Uh, This image comes from Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm foretelling the coming of Christ. Uh, Psalm 2, verses 7 and 9 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So by saying he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, John is letting his readers know that this is the Messiah. Uh, This is the one who was prophesied to come. This is... This is the seed of the woman that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, the divine Son of God. And and here, what what we're given is a snapshot of Christ's entire life and ministry. Uh, The first thing he sees is the child born. The next thing he sees is is the Messiah ascending into heaven. Uh, By his death and resurrection, Christ ascends to heaven and is given all power and authority in heaven and earth. Uh, That's what he said. He said, all power and authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations right before he ascended. Um, We've seen the ascension before uh, alluding to the uh, Son of Man in Daniel that ascends to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Um, It's shown here to illustrate the utter defeat of Satan by Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Satan has failed in his mission to kill the woman's seed. Uh, Here we see the fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis chapter 3:15 I've I mentioned it a few times let me go and read it to you uh, when when God cursed the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 he said I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your seed And her seed He shall bruise you on the head And you shall bruise him on the heel He shall crush your head And you you shall bruise his heel Is what it says And so the serpent's head uh, Has indeed been crushed By the power of God's Son In rising from the grave And now all authority belongs to him And him alone Uh, The promised seed has um, It's come He's come And he's conquered the serpent Who has failed to destroy him Uh, And he's failed to thwart God's plan. But look what happens next. In verse 6, it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, uh, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Uh, After the Messiah ascends in power and conquers, uh, the woman, who is the true people of God, the true Israel, flees to the wilderness. And this reminds us of. Israel in the wilderness during the Exodus, Um, but you you need to be careful drawing too close a comparison between those two events, because here, the woman, we're going to see this a little later, uh, here, the woman flees into the wilderness to be protected and nourished by God. Uh, And in the Exodus, it was God's judgment that sent Israel into the wilderness. Um, This place is said to be prepared by God for her, and she will be nourished for those 1260 days. So, the people of God, the true people of God, which are now characterized by the Messiah who has ascended to the throne, flee into the wilderness for 1260 days. And of course, you already know from last time that that is three and a half years. 1260 days by the first century lunar calendar. And we've already seen this alluded to before. The the, uh, three and a half years, uh, not only does it... uh, Coincide with the exact time period of the Jewish War, but it also alludes to Daniel's time, times, and, time, and half a time. Uh, the woman here is the woman here is, in my opinion, it's the Jewish Christians, it's the Jewish Church, and in Jerusalem, that fled to the wilderness, that fled to the hills of Judea in obedience to Christ's command at the Olivet Discourse. He told them that when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies to flee to the wilderness. And, of course, we've already seen that they did so. We have Eusebius uh, telling us that they fled to, uh, they fled to Pella. Um, what we're seeing here is the mother church from Jerusalem, the very first Uh, The first fruits of Christianity, the Jewish Christians, uh, they were the ones from which all other believers originated, as, of course, the Jewish apostles and the missionaries were sent out from Jerusalem into the world. Uh, The Jewish church is is, uh, nourished, protected as all the other external elements of the old covenant religion are destroyed and wiped from the face of the earth. Uh, the point that's being made here is to give context to what's happening in terms of the covenant judgments being handed out. We've seen covenant judgments. We've already looked at the seals opened. We've already looked at the trumpets being blown. And what we see here now that uh, in uh, in, the, in the chapter 11, last thing we saw was the temple opened in heaven. Uh, what we're getting now is some of the I don't want to say backstory, but we're getting the, um, we're getting a complete look at what, uh, led up to this. He's summarizing the entire story by going back to the seed of the woman and the, the dragon, the ancient serpent. And he's going back and he is giving us the context in, into which all of this falls. Uh, we're seeing, we're seeing from the very beginning, the struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and and we 're seeing it culminate in all these all these things. so what we 're going to see now as we move into verse seven uh, in the rest of this chapter is the rest of this chapter is a recapitulation of what we 've already seen. John uh, is going to see another vision which shows the reader pretty much the same thing that we've just seen, but from a different perspective. In the, in the first part of John's vision, uh, all that was seen in the heavens. Now he's going to show us how this vision uh, plays out on, on the earth. And I need you to also remember, I may not have made this point at the very beginning, but what we're talking about here as the flow of Revelation goes is visionary sequence. John sees this vision, then he sees that vision then he sees this vision it does not necessarily mean that the visions uh, are fulfilled in chronological order uh, i hope that you've been able to see that uh, before now but i probably haven't made it explicit until now but we if you've noticed as we've gone through and we've looked at the you know uh, the lamb taking the book from the from the throne uh, that is the, is Christ taking, you know, his power and authority to, you know, based on the resurrection and, and all those things. We, John is writing, uh, as, uh, before AD 70. So the resurrection, the ascension have already taken place. And so these visions that he's seeing are, um, explanatory tools that God is using to reveal to us. They are not intended to be a chronological, uh, journal of what has happened or what is going to happen. Um, so, in verse 7 it says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But when he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, let me just stop there for a moment. Um, what we're given here is uh, the vision that John sees. He sees a war. A war in heaven. Um, There are lots of elements to this vision that raise some serious questions for the interpreter. I mean, a war in heaven? uh, What's that all about? I mean, even if you believe this is an end-time prophecy in the future sometime, I mean, you're seriously saying that Satan and his angels are going to invade heaven? Uh, I mean, who exactly do you think God is? Is he not all-powerful? Is he not all-knowing? I mean... Uh, he speaks, and it comes to pass, to how does a war in heaven fit into the biblical understanding of, of who God is and, and His rule over creation? But remember, remember, this is a vision. It, it's a sign. Uh, what John is showing us is a spiritual war against God's forces, and between God's forces and the wicked one. Uh, the spiritual conflict has been raging ever since God foretold the coming of the woman's seed in Genesis chapter 3. Um, I, I hope to demonstrate this more fully as we look, you know, at the players in this scene and see the allusions from Daniel that John is referencing. But this is he is he is documenting for us. He sees the vision of a war in heaven, but that vision is symbolizing this spiritual war that has been that has been raging ever since the the very beginning. Um, uh, in in Daniel. It, in Daniel, we see Michael, uh, which is referenced in this verse. In, in, in uh, verse 7, it says, A war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Uh, in Daniel chapter 10, Michael fights together with the Son of Man uh, for Israel. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 say, uh, the print, This is Son of Man speaking, uh, it says, or the, the one like a son of man, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, uh, for the vision is for days yet to come. He is, um, Michael's also prophesied to arise, uh, during, uh, uh a future eschatological time in Daniel. Uh, that is characterized by great distress. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Uh, and so there's a lot of different pictures going on right there. Uh, so we see the connection... Pretty clearly. Uh, but the debated question is, who is Michael? Who is this Michael? Now, there are going to be a lot of people, people that I respect, people that are way smarter than me, that say that this Michael here is an image, a symbol that symbolizes Christ himself. They, they will show you that Michael is seen as the ruler of the angels. Uh, and that's what archangel actually means. R. K is a ruler and angel, you know uh, the ruler of the angels, and they'll say that that's a that's a reference to the captain of the Lord's host that we see in Joshua, uh, and the captain of the Lord's host in Joshua is definitely a picture of the preincarnate Son. There's no doubt about that because he he is a the angel of the Lord, but he speaks as Yahweh, and so uh, they'll say that this Michael, who is the ruler of the angels, the archangel, um, is the the same as the captain of the Lord's host. So therefore, he must be. Uh, Christ. And, you know, we they also say that Michael appears in heaven uh, after the ascension of the child, uh, and then leads the heavenly army to defeat the dragon, uh, which is what Christ has done, Christ has defeated. We're going to see that in a moment. And to be quite honest with you, you know, it's possible. It's possible that Michael is a symbol for, for Christ himself. Um... Let me tell you why I lean toward a different understanding, and it's because of the methodology that we have been using all the way up until now. I I try not to. Uh, uh, I try to uh, make sure that I uh, uh, I look at the Old Testament reference that John is referencing, and and uh, and understand the context of that reference before I uh, go running off with interpretations of my own fancy. Um, and not to say that those who believe this is Christ are doing that i'm just saying this is why i, I have trouble with that interpretation um in daniel's text that we have already read uh, michael is and the son of man are distinguished from each other michael and um the uh the one that ascends to the throne are distinguished from each other and so here i, I can't see them conflated but it's possible, more than possible, it's likely that Michael's a representative of the heavenly army that fights alongside. Uh, maybe he's a, a representative of the Son of Man himself. Um, and so I, I see that Michael is, I, I would take Michael as a representative of Christ and his army uh, rather than Christ himself. But what about this spiritual war? What's the result of the spiritual war? Of course, you already know probably the dragon is defeated uh, and he's cast down. He's cast down to the earth. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but in verse uh, verse 10 and 11 in this chapter, Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see that Satan's defeat is going to be connected to the victorious work of the Messiah. So what we have here is a reference to the fall of Satan and his angels being cast down. Uh, but the reality is that Satan, with all his tactics and devices, "...has been overcome and defeated by the gospel, by the death, the burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ. His head has been crushed by the seed of the woman, which was uh, prophesied so long ago. The the resurrection and ascension of Christ has sealed his defeat, and he is no longer allowed to accuse the brethren before God." Uh, We'll see that in just a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 9 says, "...and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan." The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, for the second time in this chapter, we're given a picture of Satan cast out from God's presence in defeat. Uh first he is here he's called the ancient serpent. And of course you've seen you've heard me say it before already. This links him with the serpent in the garden. We've seen before. Uh, all of this that we're seeing is a fulfillment of that initial curse God laid upon the serpent in the garden. Uh, his seed, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. But notice the sphere here in which Satan Satan's defeat is shown to us. Uh, We're given two names for him. We're given, the verse tells us that the ancient serpent is called the devil and he's called Satan. In Hebrew, the word Satan means adversary, and in Greek, the devil, the word diabolus, devil, means slanderer. He is also described as the one who deceives, the one who deceives the world. So, We're given a description of his activities in which Satan has been defeated and is no longer able to wage war against the brethren uh, through deception or through uh, slander, accusation. We're going to see that more fully in a minute. But because of the gospel, he has no more foothold to accuse and to slander the brethren. Um, The gospel has gone out into the nations and everywhere it goes, it is victorious over the devil's deception at the cross uh, and the resurrection satan was truly defeated in his efforts to keep mankind in darkness now here again the language of satan and his angels being cast down to earth is used I've seen it before already in this chapter uh, and of course anyone reading these texts is going to automatically notice the reference to satan's fall when he attempted to uh, usurp the throne of god and exalt himself above Uh, Above the Almighty, Uh, and that's definitely an allusion to what we're seeing here. But in the context of this chapter, uh, what what John actually is denoting is that he's showing Satan's defeat and his being being thrown down um, in the triumph of the gospel. Um, it, it's We had not got there yet, and I've told you already, and I'm still pointing forward to it. Verses 10 and 11, uh, the, uh, the proclamation that we're going to hear is that it is the authority of Christ that has thrown Satan down, that has defeated him. Uh, so we can't dismiss the fact that in John's vision, the defeat of Satan and his minions is... Um, It's connected to the gospel. He is defeated at the death and resurrection of Christ. He's been thrown out of God's presence, meaning he can no longer stand in accusation of God's people, uh, you know, because no one can bring a charge against God's elect. The gospel has atoned for every accusation that Satan might bring against believers. He has been excommunicated, for lack of a better word, Uh, he has been removed. And is defeated this this isn 't a novel idea in the New Testament in fact, I mean we 're told over and over again that Satan and his purposes are defeated and destroyed in the gospel in john twelve thirty one Jesus says, "Now is the judgment of the world. now shall the prince of this world be cast out that 's right before the crucifixion in john sixteen eleven uh, uh, he says the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then in John sixteen eleven, he says of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Uh, Hebrews two uh, fourteen says, for as much as, uh for as, much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is, the devil. And in First John 3, 8, he says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then, of course, uh, the ultimate reference to, to Satan's uh, falling, uh, being defeated, is in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the the 70 disciples. And when they come back rejoicing because the, the demons were subject to them, uh, Jesus said that he saw Satan fall like lightning as the gospel went out with those 70. So it's not out of bounds at all to see uh, this uh, not... Uh, talking primarily about a pre-creation fall of Satan, but but talking about his defeat in the death and the resurrection of Christ, talking about him being thrown down and defeated uh, in what Jesus accomplished. Uh, and as Satan is defeated, we're, we hear the triumphant proclamation of the gospel in verses 10 and 11. It says, in verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For, this is why, the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, at Satan's defeat, the authority of God's Christ has come. This is what Jesus said at his ascension. All power and authority have been given to me on heaven and earth. Uh, We also see this in Daniel's prophecy, uh, when the Son of Man ascends to the throne. It says, given to him a kingdom that will never pass away. But once again, look at the tactic of Satan uh, that has been defeated because of his being thrown down, because of the gospel. It says he is the accuser Of the brethren, and in fact, he accuses them day and night. Uh, We have already made reference to the fact that it it almost seems like this is his main activity. Uh, I mean, he is busy all day, all night, accusing the brethren before the throne of God. All day, all night, accusing, 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 bringing slander, accusation. Uh, He always makes accusation against the people of God, but now that time, that time is over. Jesus has atoned for their sins, so there's no longer any basis for accusation. Uh, there is definitely no accusation that can be leveled against Jesus, so the people of Christ are safe and they're secure through the gospel and his work for them. Uh, this is the proclamation of heaven. It's finished. The work is done. Satan is defeated. Uh, but not only is it the proclamation of heaven, it's also a reality now on earth. Look at verse 11. It says, And they overcame him. They conquered him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced death. Because of Satan's defeat at the cross, the remnant of God's people now are overcomers, are conquerors of Satan. Uh, The brethren themselves who, who have been accused day and night are Satan's conquerors but look how they have overcome him this is one of the main reasons why i have to tie the casting down of satan to the gospel and to the work of christ it says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb this i mean doesn't need much explanation for those of you who are steeped in the gospel but the blood christ paid for their sins uh you know is is uh, atoning for all their Uh, all their sin, all their transgression, and now they've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. There is no accusation or slander that can stick in the mind or against the law of God. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. Uh, And all their sins are atoned for. They have conquered it, not in their own power or their own goodness, but by the blood of the Lamb, by the gospel. It also says that they they conquer Him by the word of their testimony, by their witness. Their lives demonstrate the reality of this adoption. This isn't just a legal declaration of God. I mean, it is that, but it's not just that. This is a supernatural adoption whereby God Himself dwells in His people. They become His witnesses, uh, witnesses of His grace and His victory. And their testimony is such that they, uh, they are conquerors of death itself. They, they didn't love their lives unto death. Uh, Satan has no hold over them at all. He's, I mean, he's always ready to kill, to steal, to destroy, but death holds no more sting for them. In fact, one of the historical realities we see through church history is that believers in, in Christ relished the opportunity to go to their death for the name of Christ. Uh, I mean, what can Satan do to people who actually look forward to their death? Uh, I mean, they're absolutely free, absolutely victorious, over anything he can throw at them, and he can't go before the throne any longer and accuse them because all those accusations have been atoned for. So Satan has spent his time accusing God's people, uh, but it is not the people who have been cast out, cast down from God's presence. It's Satan himself. Uh, the Christians in the first century to whom John is writing, they're suffering. Uh, they need... They need the assurance of knowing that they they have won and their adversary is defeated. Even though, you know, at the moment he is raging and it looks like they're being defeated on every side, they are truly victorious. And here... Uh, we got to make sure we mention that overcoming him doesn't necessarily mean that believers are free from persecution or suffering, but that there's nothing that can be done that will affect the victory that, that Christ has purchased. These people are victorious, but yet they still will go to their death. It says they love not their lives to death. They they didn't they uh, held that testimony even to their death. God has granted his children the power to be faithful through whatever happens. All the way to death. Now, there's some people that are going to see this group of people here as these overcomers, as a special class of Christian uh, during the future end-time tribulation. Uh, the reason I can't quite bite off on that is, uh, well, well, it's because of a few things, but mostly because John, the writer of the letter himself, uses the very same language to describe his present situation as he's writing, uh, and the situation of the churches to whom he's writing to. In Revelation one nine, we saw it. It says John himself suffered because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, John says that you know all those in the seven churches were fellow partakers in the tribulation and the kingdom with him. You know those that were alive at that time. You see the same language in Revelation six nine and six eleven. You can go and look those up. Um, as we continue in the chapter, uh, the proclamation of the defeat of Satan is still being made. The voices continue in verse 12. The first part of ver- verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Uh, this is interesting because it's the only place in all of Revelation that the word heavens is found in the plural. Uh, when you see something like that, you, you immediately know that there's Probably got to be a reason for it. Uh, every other mention of the word heaven in the, is in singular in the singular in Revelation, uh, but here it's heavens. Uh, and the reason it, it's relatively simple is because the Hebrew word for now. Remember, Revelation is written in Greek, but uh, in the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, uh, the word for heaven is a is a is a plural a plural noun. Shemayim is the is the word, and every time you have an I-M on the end of a Hebrew word, it makes it plural. Uh, Well, it makes it in a plural form. Uh, It doesn't always mean that the word should be translated in the plural, you know, because many people have noticed that the word for God, Elohim, is also in a plural form. Um, But, you know, that's a whole different discussion. Uh, The reason it's in the plural here is because, in Greek, is because John is referencing the many Old Testament prophets that called for the heavens plural to rejoice when God's kingdom and judgment takes place when uh, when God's kingdom and judgment goes forth uh many of the old testament uh writers and prophets, uh, called to the heavens. It goes back to Moses when he made the covenant where he said, "You know, I call the heavens and the earth to bear witness. And so when the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek, that plural was brought in as well. Every time you see it in the Old Testament, it says, I call to the heavens to have them witness. I call to the heavens to rejoice. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 43, 1st Chronicles 16.31, Psalm 95.11, Isaiah 44.23, 45.8, 49.13. All these are in the outline if you just want to go there and get it. This is a prophetic form of denoting the glory and victory of God's purposes. It's covenant language, showing the fulfillment of the covenant promises and the resurrection of the Messiah, the defeat of the ancient serpent. Uh, but there's also a woe that's associated with it. In the second part of verse 12, it says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Although Satan is defeated, he is cast out. Uh, he continues to rage. he continues uh in his death throes to cause damage and destruction. He knows that he's defeated, he knows that his time is short, but that has not curbed his wrath and and his attempts to destroy those who hold the testimony um, he cannot uh he cannot eternally harm them uh but he He still devises their destruction. Uh, The crucifixion and resurrection have have sealed his fate. But now all he can do is wreak havoc and terrorize as much as possible. Uh, You probably remember our discussions of the the opening of the abyss, the bottomless pit, and the releasing of the demonic activity in Jerusalem during the the siege of Rome. Uh, And how the people inside the city just went absolutely crazy. Sickness, plague, uh, all that madness ran rampant throughout the city. Uh, We saw all that in previous chapters. Uh, Here, we're brought back to the focus of the majority of the book. As he shows us again that the land represents uh, the external, national Israel. Who've rejected the Messiah, the promised land of the Old Testament. And how... The, uh, the satanic minions were released among them as God's judgment fell. The, the true Israel of God, who are found in Jesus Christ, are protected. And they're nurtured in the wilderness. Uh, while the external religious system and everything associated with it, uh, they're destroyed. They're turned over, they're turned over to Satan. Um, but that itself is not the extent of Satan's attempts to destroy God's people. In verse 13 it says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The dragon pursued the woman. He realizes he's failed to kill the son, the child. Uh, He's failed to hinder the salvation of God's remnant. So what does he do? He pursues, he persecutes the woman. now, uh, um, this may refer specifically and directly to the Jewish Christian church in the first century. Uh, the woman, however, you remember, represents the true elect of God, the true people of God, from, from beginning to end. Now that Christ has come and finished his messianic work, uh, the people of God, uh, the woman here, the people of God, the true Israel, are defined Uh, Only in Christ. And so, certainly Satan is attacking today. But in the first century, it was the Jewish church in Jerusalem that was on the front lines of Satan's activities. Uh, We have already seen the Jewish church leaving Jerusalem as the Roman army surrounded the city and and all that. So, what what we see here is as Satan is thrown down to the earth, he starts uh, chasing uh, the people of God, the elect of God, specifically what he considers to be the elect of God is uh, the, the Jewish uh, people, the Jewish people. But we're going to see that he doesn't get the true Israel. Instead, uh, the land, the, the, uh, the external Israel takes the brunt of his blow. It says in verse 14, But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. We've already seen that. uh, To the place where she is to be nourished for time, times, and half a time. That's what we see that from Daniel, 1260 days. Uh, What we have here in verse 14 is a restatement of verse 6, basically. Uh, The newly created... I shouldn't say newly created, let's say the fulfillment of the people, the true people of God, are brought out of their oppression in a new exodus from a spiritual Egypt, which is Jerusalem. Uh, They are protected and grow for uh, the three and a half years, which we've already seen corresponds to Daniel's time, times, and half a time, uh, when the power of the holy people will be shattered and so they are removed from the Satan trying to get them. And it says, verse fifteen: the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Uh, the Satan tried to uh, tried to destroy her. The flood here is um, is Satan's attack and persecution of the woman of the Jewish Church in the first century. And there's lots of debates about what the flood is. Some people see it. As actual flooding that went on, you know something like that um but in the old testament, water overflowing is it's a symbol of armies conquering or attacking the people of god uh Daniel you can see that daniel eleven verse ten daniel eleven twenty two daniel eleven twenty six psalm eighty eight seventeen isaiah eight seven Uh, Isaiah 17, all these are in the outline. Uh, Overflowing is often a symbol of armies attacking and conquering God's people. And that's what we see in Jerusalem. And verse 16 says, But the earth came, the land, came to the help of the woman, and the, the land opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What you see here is the land takes the brunt of the attack rather than the woman. The land ends up... Being the uh, the focal point of the uh, flood of armies, rather than the woman, and we see that clearly. the The Jewish Church fled into the wilderness and was nurtured, while the uh, the land itself, the temple, the people, the the city of Jerusalem, uh, were destroyed. Were destroyed by the the armies that flooded into the into the land. Christ's people escaped, and the Roman flood came and destroyed everything. In verse 17, finally, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I think the sand of the sea probably goes with chapter 13. Um, it It says the dragon, he's unsuccessful. The Satan is unsuccessful destroying the Messiah. Then he's unsuccessful in destroying the Jewish church that's there in the first century. Now he turns his sights on the rest of the woman's children he 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 now seeks after the rest of the seed, which is the church as a whole, all those who are co heirs with christ and that is where we're going to turn in the next chapter and see the persecution of the rest of the seed as the dragon seeks out seeks out the woman's children uh, remember that Vision sequence doesn't necessarily indicate historical chronology. So what we're going to witness in the next chapter is the Neronian persecution of the church. Uh, The point that he makes here for us is that Satan has been defeated, and though he's raging and he may indeed have we may indeed have suffering and trial in this life there 's nothing that can overcome what Christ has done, and no accusation can be brought uh, to God against his children so what we 've done here in this in this section John has kind of uh, he 's kind of backed up and given us a uh, a, a panoramic picture of the entire story, giving us a little backstory as to what's going on, and the covenant—the why the covenant judgments have fallen, and the protection that God has placed over over His people.